going to actually close up the Sermon in the Mount. And we're going to end up with the last part of chapter 7. We are not going through the Synoptic Gospel, every single uh, chapter, every single uh, phrase in it. I'm just picking up some stuff that I feel like is important for us to learn. So that's what we're going through. Last week, we actually uh, started the Sermon on the Mount, and we spent... Uh, we studied Matthew 5, 1 to 13, and today I'm just going to cl- focus on that last part of the Sermon on the Mount. Everything in the middle, I feel like you can read that on your own and you can learn a lot, but this is just important stuff for us that I want to highlight. Um, again, my, the reason why we're doing this is the purpose of this series is really Jesus of the Synoptic Gospels. So we're not studying the Synoptic Gospels. Or studying who Jesus as presented by the Synoptic Gospels. So that's a major factor f- for me in the passages that I choose. I just want to highlight stuff that we can learn about Jesus more than just going through the whole three books uh, verse by verse or anything like that. So that's one of the main reasons why sometimes we skip passages here and there. Today we're going to close with uh, the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13 to 28. If you remember, what we said last week is that the Sermon in the Mount, probably, it is not just literally Jesus sat down on the Mount and he recited these three chapters back to back as documented by Matthew. What happened probably is Matthew just collected a bunch of the teaching of Jesus and he uh, put it together in these three chapters. And Matthew does that so many times in his book, He at least five times. He kind of collected all the teaching of Jesus together. Like he collected all the teaching of Jesus about the end of time in Matthew 24, 25 toward that part. So that's how Matthew's style is. That's how he wanted to write his gospel. He did not go out to write a pure historical events exactly how it happened. He more like put collect teachings together here, collect teaching together there, so that he can convey his own message through that gospel. Now Jesus is closing up his message in uh, Matthew 7, 13 to 28, and here is what he said. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destructions. And sadly, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. Now, uh, thought number two. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are uh, voracious wolves. Wow, voracious wolves. By their fruits, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from the uh, thorn bushes or figs from the um, thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut out and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, thought number three. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? This is just scary, scary verses. Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and in your name we driven out demons and in your name we performed many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew 
you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, thought number four, or warning number four. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain comes down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because it has its foundation on the rock. What is the rock here? Jesus', Jesus word, right? But everyone who bears these words, hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain comes down, the stream rose, and the winds blow the exact same conditions. The winds blow but and beat against the house, and it fell with great crash. Now, Jesus' closing remarks are here. This is the closing of the whole sermon. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught them as the one who has authority and not like the teachers of the law. Amen? Okay, so Jesus is closing his sermon here. Remember what we said about last week? Actually, we took two weeks already in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was talking about like... If you commit adultery, you don't have to commit adultery as it's written in the Old Testament. You just need to look lustfully and you're a sinner in the eyes of God. You don't have to commit murder if you just hate your brother or call him fool. You are already broken that command from God. Now Jesus is wrapping up every single teaching he just said in the Sermon on the Mount or even his teaching in general. And he's saying that my teaching is so important that you have to be not just hearer of my word but also doer of of my word and then he gives four different warnings or four different uh, contrasts, four different things he points out to in the closing of his remarks and this is extremely important because now it kind of brings out the importance of the words of Jesus and the importance of obeying his word. The first contrast he brings to us is verse 13 and 14, the broad road versus the narrow road. Uh, then he, in verse 15 to verse 20, the false prophet versus the true prophet. Yeah. And then he moves on to tell us about the insider versus the outsider, those who are genuinely thought that they're saved but they're not, versus those who are actually saved. And the last thing is the wise versus the foolish, the one who built his house on, God's, on Jesus' word versus the one who doesn't. So four different contrasts that Jesus is bringing forth, and this serves as a warning to every single one who reads the Bible or hears the word of Jesus. Amen? The first contrast is the broad road versus the narrow road. <coughs> and this picture is even common in the Old Testament. Even in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 21, verse 8, God says this. He said, You shall also say to, his, to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I said before you the way of life and the way of death. This is pretty common Jewish theology, that people have two choices, two ways that they have to choose from. So Jesus here is building on what the Jews already can knew and perceived about God that there's two ways and they have to make their own mind. Now, <coughs> the ways that Jesus, the two ways that Jesus is contrasting here, they're different in at least four different ways. The first way has a narrow gate, but the second way has a wide gate. The narrow gate, Jesus even alluded to that later in, in Luke chapter 13, verse 23 and 24. Someone asked him, this is what we read in Luke, Lord, 
Are only few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through what? The narrow door, the narrow gate, which Jesus is talking about here. Now, continuing in that contrast, we see that the narrow gate has also a narrow road, but the wide gate has a broad road. The narrow gate leads to life or salvation, but the wide gate, the broad road, leads to destruction or damnation. And then the narrow gate, few will find it, few will enter through it, but the wide, the broad gate, the broad road, many will enter through it. Now, Jesus here is not necessarily talking about the Christian walk or the Christian conduct. He's more talking about salvation. And he's saying that salvation is like this narrow gate that leads to a narrow road that is kind of hard to walk through. But if you bear through that, you're going to end up having life. The flip side of that is if you go through the wide gate, the broad road, you might have fun while you're walking in that road. But the end of it will be destruction. Now, Jesus here is not teaching that you need to work to earn your salvation. He's not saying you need to, you have to work hard through your life so you can enter into heaven. It's more like Jesus saying, before you decide to follow me, you need to sit down and count the cost. That's kind of the point that Jesus is saying here, which he already kind of mentioned something like that in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 to verse 23. Here's what he said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he, Jesus is emphasizing the fact that before you become a Christian, you need to count the cost. He says this, For which if you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost. Can I build that tower or cannot build that tower? And Jesus continued and said, even if you're going to war, before you go to war, you need to count the cost. Can I win that war or is it going to be a lost war? You need to count the cost before you make a commitment to be my disciple. And that's in an essence what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, following me is not easy. It's going to be a narrow gate, going to have a narrow road. But if you're going to follow me, these are my way, this is my rules, and you have to do it this way. It's ultimately going to lead to life. But you have to make sure that before you step foot in, that you count the cost. You guys are with me? Amen? Amen. Now, when we talk about in the Bible study in the morning about how to share the gospel, we say that the end of it, you have to drive people to make a commitment and when part of the problems we have for me this is just my personal observation is that when we present the gospel when the church present the gospel we really don't tell people what are they are committing themselves to we say hey if you never committed your life to christ raise up your right hand if you want to go to heaven people raise their right hands and say hey you're going to heaven and then Two months down the road, people are still living in sin. And we say, oh, the problem is we have a bad discipleship program. No, you don't have a bad discipleship program. You have a bad evangelism program. You don't even tell them what they are committing to when they raise their hands. You say, raise your hand.
hands, you go to heaven. I don't know about you. I raise my hand all day long in order to go to heaven, right? But people are not being taught that they must repent of their sins. People are not being taught that they have to count the cost before they follow Jesus. That following Christ is not easy. It's not like a walk in the park. This is a massive, big commitment. And you have to either count the cost. Are you willing to follow Jesus or not? Are you willing to pay the price of following him or not? Because if you're not, don't worry about it because it's not going to work anyways. But only if you are willing to count the cost and pay the price of following Christ, that's when you're going to become a true follower of Jesus. Amen? So that's why when, we, when I talk to you guys about sharing the gospel, that last part of commitment, and I try to use that marriage analogy to try to help us communicate to the people that the commitment that you're making is serious it's a big commitment it's like again i it's like marriage when i committed my my myself to katrina when i married katrina that was a big commitment right i was like you know what i am done living as a single guy moving forward i am gonna be married i'm gonna abide by the married man's rules i'm gonna do whatever married man has to do and from today forward i never want to go back to act like a single guy. You guys are with me? That's a big commitment, right? But that's the kind of commitment that Jesus wants from us. He doesn't want 90% of your heart. He doesn't want 99% of your heart. He wants all your heart or none of your heart. You guys are with me? Amen? And I told you this before. Jesus is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Amen? Jesus is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. 95% of your heart won't cut it with Christ. So you need to count the cost. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. You have to count the cost before you follow him. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to follow Christ? Are you that committed to follow Jesus? So that is the first contrast that Jesus is giving us here. The contrast between the narrow road and the broad road. But number two, Jesus is also warning about false prophets versus true prophets. Now, <clears throat> Jesus says this. Let's look at verse 15. Watch out. Let's compare just real quick between the false prophet and the true prophet versus the people who whom he talked about later who really genuinely, sincerely shocked that they're not going to heaven. You guys are with me? Mm -hmm. They're just, Lord, how come we're not going in? You know, uh, we did miracles by your name, through your name. How come we cannot get in? The people, the false prophet, Jesus said this in verse 15, watch out for false prophet. They do what? They uh, Come to you. When they come to you, that means they're outsider. They're trying to pretend that they are insider. You guys are with me? But the people who are genuinely deceived that we're talking about later who did miracles, these people already, they, they're not trying to come to the church. They're already part of the church, but they're genuinely, genuinely shocked that they're not going to make it to heaven. You guys are with me? And Jesus said in verse 15 this, watch out for false prophets. They come to you because they pretend that, that they are part of the flock when they're not. They come to you in the sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are voracious wolves. Right. So these people are not genuinely this, like shocked when they're going to stand before Jesus. They're purposefully deceitful when they're trying to come to the church. You guys are with me? They know they are wolves from the inside, but they put on an act that they are sheep and they pretend that and they come to the church in that sense. And Jesus say, be watchful for these false prophets. 
The only way you can tell a false prophet from a real prophet is from their fruits, how they live their lives. Amen? People can claim that they're apostles and chief apostles and prophets, and you watch TV for five minutes, you just see how what kind of a joke we have in the church. You can claim that you're a prophet all that you want. Jesus said, you know the people from their fruit. Are they living a good, godly, holy life? Or they're in their fourth and fifth and sixth marriage. You know, just an example. You know the true prophet from the false prophet from the way they conduct their life. Doctrine must lead to holiness. You cannot say that you are proclaiming the word of God when you're living the life of sin. I mean, you can, but in that case, that would be a false prophet that Jesus is warning us from. Amen? So, true prophet versus false prophet. Jesus is contrasting between these two and warning us from the false prophets. But let's move on to the scariest, really few verses in this. Verse 24. Uh, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many, sad, look at this. How many? A lot of people. A lot of people will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive demons in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? And Jesus will say, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoer. Now, these people are genuinely shocked that they're not going to make it to heaven. They're really sure, like... They probably heard their name to come in front of Jesus and they got so excited because they knew that they are definitely, no question about it, are going to heaven. But Jesus tell them, what? I don't even know you. You are evildoers. And in spite of all the miracles that they have done. Now, there is absolutely no reason for us to question that these miracles are authentic and these are real miracles right they did real genuine miracles and they did it in the name of god and in the scripture we can see that miracles in itself doesn't really tell us much about if this is from god or it is not from god amen and even like people can still do miracles and they're not living a holy and a righteous life before god and that's an example of a people like that these people did genuine miracles but they they were evil doers in the same time they were not walking before god in integrity they did not do the will of my father that's what jesus said in verse 21 you guys are with me i wonder how many people in our churches belong to that group right people who come to church who think that because they're tithing, they're ministering, they're preaching, even preachers, they're preaching, they're doing all these like good things, they speak very good Christianese, they got the lingo down, they, yeah. they, they, they speak right, and they sincerely think that they, when they die, they're going to go to heaven, but when they die, they're not going to go to heaven. Amen? In Matthew 25, Jesus spoke about the goats and, and, and the sheep that he separated. And it appears to me that the same thing, the goats were also genuinely shocked in the day of judgment that they're not going to go to heaven. When Jesus said, you know, to the sheep, come into heaven because come into the kingdom of my, God, of my father because you have seen me hungry and you have fed me. You have seen me naked and you have uh, clothed me. And then he goes to the goats and say, you go away from me. And look at this, verse, Matthew 25, 44. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothing or sick or in prison and we didn't help you? These people are sincere in that question. They're like, 
When did we see you like this and we didn't help you? You guys are with me. They're genuinely shocked that they didn't help Jesus when he needed help. Obviously, Jesus talking about uh, the poor. He's talking about not helping the poor in that incident. But the point is these goats stood before Jesus on the day of judgment and they're genuinely shocked that Jesus saying, you didn't do what I commanded you to do. It's like, what is it that you commanded us to do that we have not done? Amen? These are scary, scary verses. Amen? And these are scary, scary words. That's why the scripture tells us that we need to examine ourselves. Are we of that faith? Do you belong to the family of God? You need to test yourself. You need to examine yourself. Now, how do you know if you're part of this group or you're not part of this group? The point that Jesus is saying here is this. I'm not making, I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation, but you need to know that you are saved. You guys are with me? You need to know that to be beyond the shadow of any doubt. My point, the point that Jesus is trying to make here is this. The fact that you go to church, the fact that you speak Christianese, the fact that you tithe, the fact that you even serve God, the fact that you preach, the fact that you do all this stuff, you add all of that together, plus you're trying to be a good person, you're trying to do good deeds, you're trying to serve your fellow human being, you add all that combination together, that does not equal salvation. Amen. Amen? Salvation is a living encounter with the living Christ. If your life has not been transformed, if you have not made a commitment to fully follow Jesus, and the result of that commitment is that you have become a brand new creation in Christ Jesus, then you're not saved. Amen? Amen. You, can make, you can do miracles. You can drive out demons. You can heal the sick. You can command the, the laws of nature and they will bend backward over to obey you in the name of Jesus. Yet, when you die, you're not going to go to heaven because the only way to enter into heaven is a living relationship with the living Christ. Now, you're the only one who can answer that question for yourself. The fact that you come here to church doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that you're saved. You're the one who needs to answer that question for yourself. Do you know that you know that you know that you have encountered the living Christ? Do you know that you know that you know that your life has been changed? If you, the answer to that is yes, then you don't have to worry about that phrase. But if you're not sure, then you might belong to that group of people who are genuinely shocked that they have not made it to heaven. Amen? Amen. Examine yourself. Take the words of Jesus extremely, extremely seriously. This is extremely, extremely important. Amen? Amen. So, now, let's just pause here for one more minute. I want to highlight to you again as we go through the synoptic gospels how Jesus, even though he's not saying I am God, yet so many times he implies that he is equal to God, right? And in that, that, uh, paragraph that we're reading here, Jesus is definitely implying to his reader that he is God because he is setting himself up to be the judge of the whole world, right? Which is a function only reserved to God. Anybody remember, we have seen so far many incidences where Jesus has implied in the Synoptic Gospel that he is equal to the Father. Anybody recalls any of these incidents that we have recalled so that we have mentioned so far? Forgiving sins, right? Remember that when Jesus forgave the sin of the paralytic? That's a function that is only reserved to the Father. Jesus claimed that function for himself. Any other incidents or claims? 
When Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, it is written, but I say to you, right? When he sets his, his word to be equal to the word of the law, the word of God, you know, I, it is written, do not commit adultery. Where is it written that? In the Ten Commandments. Who said that? God. But Jesus said, but I say to you, makes his word of equal authoritative value as the word of God, right? We mentioned that as well. Um, we haven't talked about it in this series, but... Matthew said when the angel came to, Je to, to Joseph, he said, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. Now, that's a function only God can save people from their sins. But it is Jesus here who saves. And here, right here, we see another example of, a, of an incidence where Jesus, not claiming to be the Father, because he's not, not claiming to be God, because God is the Father, but he's claiming to be equal with God in the sense that he is the judge of the whole earth. And that is a function that reserved only to the Father. He's equal with God in that sense. Look at this, verse 21. Not everyone who says to the judge, does Jesus say that? Verse 21. Not everyone who says to the, to me. to me, Jesus said to me, when I, when you stand before me in the day of judgment, you're going to speak to me and you say, Lord, Lord, <coughs> will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day on that day that phrase in the scripture is always reserved to the day of judgment or God's ultimate judgment day in the book of Jewel on that day the sun will will vanish and the moon will whatever you know so it's like on that day throughout the scripture is a reserve to describe God's ultimate judge, judgment but now Jesus is saying many will say to not to God but to me on the day of judgment Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do drive demons in your name, perform miracles in your name? Then I, as that judge, will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evil doers. So he's the one who can decide the ultimate fate of people. Amen? Because he's the judge. He is God in flesh. Amen? Amen. Now, moving forward, maybe this last... 21. 21? Say, I was thinking to myself, when right. I say, when who says to me, Lord, Lord? Right. You, can, you may think he's referring to God, but when you read the whole sentence, it's like, uh, but only the one who does the will of <coughs> Father. Right. So the Lord, Lord is him. Jesus. And he said, says to me, Lord, mm -hmm. Lord. Yes. Yeah. Now, the word Lord, Lord is tricky. It doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is God, because the word Lord. It can be just say like the Lord of the house. It's like, sir, you know what I mean? So it doesn't necessarily imply that he is God. In the context here, it probably does because now he's the judge and everybody's talking to the judge, calling him Lord, Lord. So in our context, this probably is, but it's not, this is not one of the 100% persuasive arguments that I would do, but you know, it's subjective. And I'm trying to focus on the stuff that is not subjective. This is clear cut. Jesus here is definitely claiming to be equal with God. You guys are with me? All right. Now, moving forward to verse 24. And this is very applicable to you. If you're a Christian, you're a born again believer. This is extremely important to you. Jesus is saying this. The importance of not just hearing his word, but also to live his word. Not just to be hearer of the word, but a doer of of the word and Jesus said everyone who hears these words of mine 
Look at that. Hears these words of mine and put them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain comes down, the stream rose, and the winds blow and against, against the house. Yet it did not fail because it has its foundation on the rock. Now, every single time, think about this. Every single time you read the Bible, Every single time you come to church and you hear about the words of Jesus, what he's commanding us to do, what he wants us to do, the way he wants you to live your life, whether when it comes to your conduct in holiness or sharing the gospel or whatever command, whatever word Jesus has for you, think about it this way. If you obey the word of Jesus, you are building your house on a rock and nothing going to move that away. But if you hear his word in the church or in the Bible and then you go out and don't live that word, don't obey that word, then you'd sleep. you're a builder who's building this his house on the sand and it will surely fail. Yeah. Think about this. Both the one who built their house in the sand and built their house on the rock, they both heard Jesus' word. Right? It's not like one heard it and one never knew about it. They both heard it. The difference is not if they heard it or not. The difference is did they live it or not. Right? And if they lived it, it's like the people who built their house on the rock. And if they did not live it, it's like the people who built their house on the sand. I don't know about you. When I was reading this, I was like, Jesus, help me not just to hear your word, but to live your word. Every word Jesus said, even when we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount last week, when Jesus said, like, I heard it is written, do not commit murder, but if you hate your brother. This is one of the words of Jesus that we need to live, because if you don't live that word, you're building your house on a, on a sand, and it will surely fail, right? Jesus said, if you hate your brother, if you call him fool, then you are worthy of hellfire. Then we need to obey that word. We need to live that command, because if we don't, we're building our house on sand and it will surely tremble. Amen? Amen? Every single word of Jesus, every single thing that you read in the Bible, you need not just to be a hearer of the word, but you need to bring it to life. You need to obey it 100%. Amen? Because if you don't, you're building your house on a sand and it will surely fail. Now, in that passage as well, Jesus, look at this, again, it's a claim, he's making himself to be equal with God, because look at verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears God's word, right, is that what he said, here's what, these words of mine, and put them into practice, so look at this, Jesus is making his own words, the foundation by which you build your house, well, what found, what, if you've never read this phrase before, if you've never read that passage before, and somebody meets you in the street and is like, whose word should be the foundation by which you should build and live your life? What would you answer to that? God's word, right? God's word. That's God's word that we, that's the word, that's the foundation for our words, as a, for our life. As a matter of fact, in the book of Proverbs, the whole idea of building the word, it says that you should build your house on wisdom, which in the book of Proverbs, in, in, the, in that context, is equivalent to the law of God. So the idea in the book of Proverbs is that you should build your house, you should live your life based on the foundation of God's word, his law, this way you can prosper. Yet Jesus here has no problem putting his own word to be as authoritative and as powerful as the word of God himself, as the law, which is God's word himself. Amen? Amen. So you built, again, 
subtle hints, no explicit claims, but definitely tons of subtle hints here. Jesus was definitely aware and not shy of claiming equality with God. Amen? Now, last closing thought here. In these four contrasts that we have seen, in each one of these contrasts, there is bad consequences if you don't do what is that contrast is implying for you to do or asking you to do. And the contrast between the wide and the narrow gate, verse 13 we read this, the wide gate, uh, the, uh, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. destruction. So if you don't count the cost right, and make a commitment to follow Jesus and decide to take the easy way and live the way the world wants you to live, that's fine. Just know that your end is awful because you're going to end up with that destruction. Amen? The second contrast between the false prophet and the true prophet, Jesus said it's like the tr you know them from their fruit. And then Jesus said in verse 19, <coughs> every tree that does not bear good fruit, like the false prophet, and those who obey the false prophets and follow their teachings, what happened to them? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is, uh, what happened to it? Cut down and thrown into the fire. fire. Verse 23, those who are genuinely deceived, who think that because they perform miracles, they're going to go to heaven, but deep down in their hearts, they're still wicked, they're still evil doers, they have not made a real commitment to follow Christ. What did Jesus say to them in verse 23? Away from me, you evil doers. Do you see that in each one of these contrasts, there is an awful consequence if you don't obey the word of Jesus, right? Verse 27, again, the person who doesn't apply the word of Jesus, the rain comes down the stream, rose, and the winds blew, and it beats against the house, and it uh, fell with uh, just a small dents here and there, right? Says that. It falls with a great crash. Do you see the warnings? One after the other. When Jesus speak, we listen, and not only listen, but we also obey. Because if we don't, there is massive, horrible consequences waiting for those who don't obey the voice of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, let's close our eyes and pray.